You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, How to Turn Your Independent Film into a Money-Making Business by Alex Ferrari. For a free copy of the audiobook, head over to www.filmbizbook.com. Welcome to the Director Series Podcast, a show dedicated to deconstructing the work of some of cinema's most celebrated and influential film directors. I'm your host, Cameron Bile. In 1974, director William Friedkin released The Exorcist and unleashed a genuine phenomenon of fright. His lead actress, Ellen Burstyn, was vaulted into a position of creative power off the strength of her performance in the film, bestowed with the enviable privilege of choosing whatever role she wanted next. A brilliant and gifted performer, Burstyn was dissatisfied with the limited options available to actresses. She didn't want to play another supportive housewife or put-upon mother, but ironically, her next role would be just that. Albeit with a twist that enabled her to own the role completely, all the way to a Best Actress win at the Academy Awards. The project was Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, an Oscar-nominated script by Robert Getchell about a single mother's treacherous journey to provide for her son. Acting as her own executive producer, Burson went about searching for a young, up-and-coming director to helm the film. Her search started with director Brian De Palma, who would serve as her entry point into the larger pool of up-and-coming filmmakers from his generation. De Palma introduced Burston to Francis Ford Coppola, who in turn recommended a fiery hotshot named Martin Scorsese, fresh off his breakout third feature, Mean Streets. Burston liked the gritty, angsty immediacy of Scorsese's film, but was unsure his sensibilities would translate to a feminine perspective. Scorsese himself was uncertain, reportedly telling Burston that he didn't, quote, know anything about women to which his then-girlfriend Sandy Weintraub, in an anecdote detailed in Tom Schoen's biography on the director, responded, Women are just people. Scorsese was at a point in his life where these words hit particularly close to home. He might not have possessed feminine intuition, but he could connect with a messy life threatening to careen off the rails. He himself was caught in the grips of existential chaos brought about by his evolving identity. The sting of divorce still fresh in his mind, Scorsese was playing with the idea of remaking himself— erasing all that had come before. The pale, sickly kid from Manhattan was now living in Los Angeles, wearing cowboy shirts and growing a beard, letting his hair grow long. He was Hollywood now, living with Weintraub in a small Spanish-style house off Mulholland Drive, next-door neighbors to Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson. He still aspired to make intensely personal films, and in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, he saw an opportunity to make a film about people living in a similar state of chaos, trying to take back control of their lives. This new opportunity represented a new ideal, the kind of career he thought he wanted. His first film with the major Hollywood studio, Warner Brothers, with a budget nearly triple that of Mean Streets. The result, since largely eclipsed by the monumental work still to come, would be a heartfelt, sincere, and entertaining display of Scorsese's feminine side. Look, Flo, I really don't need anybody making speeches for me, so I would appreciate it if you'd just leave me out of your jokes, okay? Jokes? What jokes? Well, the little routine you do for the fellas. Just leave me out of it. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore takes place in the arid deserts and crumbling dwellings of the American Southwest. Alice is something of an old-fashioned woman, 
a humble housewife living in New Mexico with her rowdy, rebellious son, Tommy, and a husband who only pays attention to her when he's angry with her. Alice is fundamentally unhappy with her situation. Not that she'd ever admit it to anyone. When her husband is killed in a trucking accident, leaving Alice and Tommy with an uncertain future and very little money, they pack their things in search of a better life in Monterey, California, the idyllic town where Alice spent her childhood. They hit the road, with Alice picking up work as a singer along the way. While this provides some cash flow, it also attracts bad characters, like Harvey Keitel's philandering, abusive young buck, Ben, himself no better than the dead husband she left behind. Alice gets another job as a waitress in an Arizona diner, so that she can more reliably provide for her young son. It's here that she meets Chris Christopherson's David, a quiet rancher with kind eyes. Alice and David eventually fall in love, but like any relationship, it's not without its share of turbulence. Ultimately, Alice doesn't live here anymore is a character test. If she's to take charge of her own destiny, Alice must prove her mettle as a modern, independent woman. Burston is surrounded by an ensemble of fine actors, notably Christopherson's career-best performance as the strong, silent-type rancher. Keitel, in his third consecutive collaboration with Scorsese, brings his signature Manhattan machismo to the role of Ben, a foppish cowboy wannabe with a serious anger problem. Alfred Lutter threatens to steal the film as Alice's smart-ass kid, Tommy, while a young Jodie Foster also appears as Audrey, a tomboyish delinquent and latchkey child. In the process, she delivers a performance that would compel Scorsese to cast her in his next feature, Taxi Driver, thus kickstarting one of the more accomplished acting and producing careers in Hollywood. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore also includes a handful of curious cameos, including Scorsese himself, and even a then-unknown Laura Dern as a little girl eating ice cream in the diner. Scorsese is smart enough to know what he doesn't know, so when it comes to portraying a feminine worldview, he surrounds himself with as many female collaborators as possible. Beyond his close collaboration with Burston, this would also include Weintraub coming aboard as an associate producer, editor Marsha Lucas, then wife to Star Wars' George Lucas, and Toby Carr Rafelson, wife to Bob Rafelson of Five Easy Pieces fame. Toby serves as the production designer, crafting a lived-in and run-down patina while conjuring its exact opposite effect at story's beginning, an overtly theatrical, technicolor romanticization of Alice's childhood home in Monterey. For Scorsese, personally, this set was a big deal, an affectionate nod towards the expressionistic backdrops of Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. It was meant to evoke Monterey as a mythical land the adult Alice yearned to return to, a place too full of happiness and innocence to actually exist in real life. It was designed by one of the designers from Citizen Kane, and the cost just to build it was twice the total budget of Who's That Knocking at My Door. He became so invested in this set that when Warner Brothers executives expressed a desire to cut the sequence entirely, he threatened to take his name off the whole thing. As for his male collaborators, Scorsese reteams with his Mean Street cinematographer Kent Wakeford, who trades the bold swaths of nightclub red from their previous collaboration for the brighter palette of softer floral hues found throughout their shooting locations in Tucson, Arizona. A variety of handheld, dolly, and crane movements inject an immediacy and tactile grit into the 35mm film image. Further borrowing techniques popularized by the French New Wave, like rack zooms and jump cuts, and a bid to bring some edge to what otherwise might be considered a conventional flyover country melodrama. Richard LaSalle is credited for the film's score, but Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore again displays Scorsese's affection for rock music as a storytelling tool. 
incorporating contemporary tracks from artists like Mop the Hoople and Elton John in a bid to root Alice's experience and worldview in a specific time and place. While Scorsese may be way out of his element in terms of locale and subject matter, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore still manages to bear his undeniable stamp. Like the tempestuous hoods and mean streets, the men in Alice's life are impulsively violent and quick-tempered. When those impulses are indulged, the results are messy, chaotic, and unpredictable. Indeed, even out in this vast expanse of southwestern desert, Scorsese can't escape the random violence of urban life, such as the scene where Alice and Tommy lay in bed listening to a couple loudly fighting in the next hotel room over. Like their East Coast counterparts, the characters that populate Scorsese Southwest don't put on any airs, unafraid to utter casual profanities or openly display their misogyny. Selected by the Cannes Film Festival to compete for the prestigious Palme d'Or, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore was subsequently released to near-unanimous praise from critics, leading all the way to the aforementioned and well-deserved Best Actress Oscar win for Burston. The film also performed well at the box office, earning $21 million against his $1.8 million budget, and would even go on to inspire a spin-off television sitcom named Alice, set in the same diner and featuring some of the same cast members from the film. Burston, expectedly, did not make the same leap to the small screen. It would seem everyone was quite pleased with the final product. That is, except for the filmmaker himself. Scorsese had embarked on this little road trip with the intention of asserting authorial control within the studio system, just as his heroes Howard Hawks and Nicholas Ray had done in their own time. He was largely successful towards this end, but the process nonetheless demoralized him. What he saw as a journey to broaden his worldview, to expand the reaches of his identity out into the endless vistas of the American Southwest, had left him lost unmoored. He was far from home, far from the East Coast atmosphere he knew so well, and the hardened people who inhabited it. Despite Alice doesn't live here anymore's charms and strengths, the final product only reinforced the fact that Scorsese's voice was too laden with conviction and passion to constrain itself within the parameters of an impersonal commercial system. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Fortunately for him, the gears of fate were already turning towards a concentrated phase of personal masterpieces. He was in the beginning stages of developing a quite literal passion project in the form of a revisionist biblical epic called The Last Temptation of Christ. Robert De Niro had also visited him during the production of Alice, bringing along a manuscript for a book titled Raging Bull that he hoped to make with his Mean Streets director. Yet, one more project loomed larger on his horizon than any others offering a blood-soaked return to the grimy New York streets that made him, and a fulfillment of the promise that fueled his artistic origins. Thank you for listening to the Director Series. For a deeper dive into your favorite filmmakers, go to www.directorseries.net. The Director Series is made possible in large part by our generous supporters on Patreon. Please visit us at patreon.com backslash director series to see how your contribution enables the continued production of video essays and text articles on your favorite contemporary and classic film directors. Thank you.